Hello and welcome to another episode of What's That Noise, the podcast that pursues matters of confusion and clarity, however and whatever that means. Today we're back with another episode of our little mini-series at the University of Toronto Sociology Department. Today we're joined by Dr. Ju Young Lee, an Associate Professor of Sociology and faculty member at the Center for the Study of the United States, which is housed in the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Ju Young researches and writes about gun violence, health disparities, hip-hop, and true crime. And he's the author of the award-winning Blowin' Up, Rap Dreams in South Central, published in 2016 by the University of Chicago Press. In this episode, we sit down with Ju Young to talk about his approach to reflexive ethnography, some of his strategies for staying down in both research and teaching, and how he's been so damn successful on social media. So why don't you hang out a little while while we pick the brain of one of sociology's most positive forces. Today we are on the second episode of this wonderful series here at the, in the Department of Sociology at the University of Toronto and I'm joined by another one of those colleagues that I've been hounding on Twitter um, to come on the podcast, uh, Professor Ju Young Lee, uh, Department of Sociology as well as the Monk School of Global Affairs, correct? Yeah. So thank you Ju Young for, for, for having me. For joining us, uh, really glad to get you on finally, you've been killing the uh, social media game so this is another a really cool uh, opportunity to pick your brain on that a little bit. So you've got a, a great book, one of my favorite books of the past couple oh, years. Oh man, thanks. Blowing Up, Rap Dreams in South Central. Is it University of Chicago Press? Yes. Uh, uh, it's a wonderful book. Can you tell us a little bit about that, um, the sort of uh, foundations of that research, where it started, what you were trying to, to get at, what noise you were trying to deal with um, with that research? Sure. So I was actually a first year grad student. So I enrolled in uh, field methods or ethnography at UCLA. It was a two semester course taught by Bob Emerson. And our first assignment was to find a field site. And initially I was gonna study like pool hustlers. And I was kind of going to these like bars um, close to where I lived in West LA. And I wasn't having that much fun. Like it was an interesting thing, but I don't play pool. Um, so it didn't really seem like something that was going to take off. And so I was walking around campus one day and, uh, a friend of mine from Berkeley who we were undergrads together in Berkeley and we had been working at this after school program at Berkeley high school, mentoring, uh, students who, you know, were the first generation to go to university or were aspiring to. And he was like, you know, are you still into hip hop? And I was like, yeah, of course I'm into hip hop. And he mentioned um, this open mic workshop in South Central LA called Project Blowed, which is where the, the book is set, or, or mo much of the book is set there. And he was like, well, you got to go check it out. It's crazy. It's dope. You're going to love it. And so I actually had an assignment due. I had field notes due. Uh, the following week, and I was like, I don't want to go back to the pool hall and just like stand around and watch like you know, dudes try to spit game like on dates and stuff like that. It was a popular place for people to go like when they were going out and stuff. So I drove out there and I just sort of like started hanging out in the scene, and almost immediately I sort of had this feeling like, oh, this is like 
something that I could really get into. Like I, I can see myself coming back here. Um, yeah, and it just kind of went from there. Like I really began sort of, I had this like thing that was due, this pragmatic concern. It was like, I have to get this assignment in. I don't want to like flunk out in my first semester of like grad school. <laughs> and when I got there, I, I had some ideas, but my mentors at the time and throughout grad school kind of approach uh, fieldwork with an inductive uh, lens. And so they were like, you know, it's good that you've read a lot about hip hop and hip hop culture within black communities, but we want you to kind of go there and really just be meticulous in describing what you see and what you learn and try to try to bracket your ideas of what it might all mean for now. Like really just zoom in on the details of life and interactions in this place. So I took that to heart. Like I really, I, I kind of pushed back a little at first, but then as I started getting into the process of writing field notes, like really dense and long field notes, I started to kind of see the value of that approach. Um, and I felt like I was capturing little random stuff that was happening in that space that I hadn't read about before. So that was like the first clue that, oh, maybe there is something to this inductive approach. Um, so I don't know if I had too many like questions right off the bat, but I know one of the first things that I zoomed into was the, were the street corner rap ciphers. So Project Bloat, for those who don't know, was this long-standing open mic workshop located in this historic neighborhood in South Central LA that was known for being like the hub of art and culture, black art and culture in, in Los Angeles. And on Thursday nights, rappers from all over the city would get together in a pretty small space, this community center known as Chaos Network. Um, and some of them would rap on a stage. Um, they would perform a song that they had prepared uh, to a peer audience who would, you know, either give them props or boo them off stage by saying, please pass the mic. Uh, so this was like the, the harshest kind of peer review. You know, this was like <laughs> having a, a room full of reviewer number two because people there did not take it easy on you. They reviewer were... number two is, is the brutal reviewer that uh, gives you not only the, the most abrupt and rude response, but is also often what gets your paper rejected yeah. for those who don't know. Yeah, this is like, I guess, a little academic joke. <laughs> reviewer <Definitely>. number two. <laughs> so... That that was one scene, and the other scene was a street corner where people would freestyle with each other. Mm. And you know, I drove up and I saw these like huge crowds standing on the street corner, and I was like, "What is this?" Like, I had to go check it out. And I I walked up to these ciphers, which are basically like circles where people take turns rhyming with each other and freestyling. And immediately, I was just sort of hooked. Mm. Um, and I think the first question I had was like, how does this all work? Just at a very basic level. Um, and I was fascinated by just everything from like the turn taking to the little rules and rituals that people were observing and practicing in the space. Um, of course, I was a fan of just listening to the lyrics and the creativity. Um, and then of course, one of the things in the book that I explore is how these um, freestyle sessions, these ciphers turn into battles, mm -hmm. which are one-on-one, -on -one, typically um, lyrical duels uh, where people try to 
humiliate the the other person they diss each other um and so i was just drawn into that and i really at a basic level just wanted to understand how does it all work yeah for sure so i think like the big thing so initially i was really into the interactions and i kind of like was going down that path for a while, but then when I started hanging out with the rappers um, outside of that space, and I started seeing them in their everyday lives, you know, I started visiting them at home. I started going with them to hustle CDs, like in Venice Beach. I, I went with them to work to kind of hang out with them and see what that was like. Um, I started getting more into the biographies of the the young men that I write about. And that kind of prompted a shift in my analytic lens and like the scope of the project as it unfolded. So I think the big contribution is really, you know, people would always ask me, why are these guys spending so much time writing songs and rehearsing and going to these open mics and, you know, performing in all these venues where they don't get paid? Don't they know that the chances are really slim? And I would always say, yeah, of course they know that. Uh, but if you look at the things that they've experienced up until this point in their young lives, you would understand why they put so much time and energy into this. And so the book is kind of trying to grapple with that idea. Like, why are they so invested in this um, pathway that in all probability is not going to work out? Um, and the answer to that you know, as I, as I began to know people better, lies in um, people's exposures to violence, uh, routine forms of violence, typically gang violence, but also violence at the hands of police and so forth in L.A. And when you grow up in this context, and this is an area where, um, you know, many of the guys I met had family and friends who were members of different Crip and Blood gangs growing up. Some of them themselves were also members of these gangs. And when you grow up in a world where you've seen friends killed in high school, um, you've seen friends um, incarcerated for the rest of their lives, you know, you've seen people in wheelchairs and you've seen family members, um, you know, injured and wounded, you realize how um, fragile life can be, you know, how quickly the, the direction that you're on can change. And you realize that, you know, like that, that kind of like idyllic future is not necessarily guaranteed. The one that I think a lot of middle-class people growing up kind of envision. I'm going to be old and retired. I'm, I'll have a nice little saved-up nest egg, and I'll travel the world a little with my partner or whatever. Um, that kind of vision is not necessarily there as much in the minds of um, these young men that I was spending time with, at least. Um, and so I think the book's contribution is this idea of existential urgency, um, which is this concept that I kind of came up with and play, play around with in the book. Um, and I define it as a sort of heightened, sen heightened sensitivity to time left in one's life course to do meaningful things. And the way I thought about it was, you know, we all kind of experience existential urgency at different parts in the life course. Some of us feel it at the end of life. You know, as you retire, you're like, oh, I, I don't have a lot of years left. I have to, you know, do all the stuff that I've been meaning to do. I can't put that off anymore. 
sometimes people experience it in midlife. We have a midlife crisis. You want to change your career. Um, and there's, a, there's various iterations of this. But for these young men, they felt it um, at that time in the life course where many of their peers were you know, getting injured, killed, or incarcerated. Um, that transition into adulthood is very precarious for many of these young men, young black men in South Central. So I think that's like the big contribution is get, getting, you know, inserting time into how we think about, you know, the ways that people organize their lives. You know, we have this kind of anticipated future or not, and that structures and shapes what we do in the here and now. And then, you know, in the hip hop kind of genre, hip hop studies genre, I think, I hope my contribution is really just to, to showcase the intricacy and the creativity that goes into making hip hop music. Um, a lot of hip hop literature, um, and I am a fan of a lot of it, I should preface that, a lot of the hip hop studies work, for a while at least, was very sort of split between studies that said it was a bad thing for young people, um, it, you know, and then people who said, well, it's a good thing, it's actually a voice for marginalized youth. So I definitely, you know, identify with the second camp of scholars who talk about hip hop that way. But I think if we only talk about it that way as this kind of political thing, then we miss out on some of the other things. You know, Robin Kelly, one of my favorite academics, talks about this too. He says that, you know, we, we miss out on how hip hop is playful, how it's a source of joy, it's a source of creativity. You know, this is also an important part of what it means to you know, young people in South Central or the Bronx or anywhere who are creating it. And this idea of, of existential urgency, I think it's a, it's a really interesting concept. And you develop it um, quite reflexively in Blowing Up. Uh, and I'm curious to, to hear more about your, your current work. I know you have a, a book that you're working on, Ricochet, right? Yes. Uh, do you develop this, this concept um, in your current work, uh, further develop this idea of existential urgency, or have you moved away from? Are you grappling with new questions? Um, I'm still grappling. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> for sure. I'm definitely grappling. Um, I I think I'm 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 I move away from it, but I I still think that that existential sensibility is there. Like I think just I don't know how it happened, actually, but I think that I've always kind of gravitated towards even novels that kind of are existential in nature. They kind of um, probe you and make you think about, like, what does this all mean? What is mm -hmm. my life about? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, the book is really about, Ricochet is about gunshot victims, and it's about people who are living with various injuries and, you know, how they cope with that. And I think, you know, in a, in a project like that, there are lots of existential questions. I don't have it like packaged yet. <laughs> I'm drafting it and hoping to finish by ASA. But oh, yeah. I'm I don't know. That's ASA is very close. So <laughs> for the listener, if you're listening, we're I don't know about a month away. Yeah. Three weeks, a month away from ASA in Philly this year. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. I think um, what really stood out to me in my reading of Blowing Up, and I did this while on a beach. Um, in, nice. in, uh, and I, I was just reading it, uh, through pretty, uh, uh pretty quickly. Uh, and I almost couldn't put it down because it seemed to be that your ethnographic approach was amongst the most reflexive approach I've read in, in current and even, um, classic ethnographic research. I'm really, really interested in how you, um, how you think about 
not only positioning yourself with your research subjects, mm -hmm. but writing it in such a, a, a easy to read and accessible prose mm -hmm. um, because you really did a great job in blowing up doing oh, that. Man. And I actually, uh, I was talking to Netta, your two books I've given to students to like uh, get them interested in ethnography, oh, and particularly reflexive ethnography. That's amazing. Wow. Thank you. I feel humbled to be, you know, like Netta, I think the world of her as a scholar and as a human being. So like just, uh, you know, thanks for the props. Um, yeah, like I grappled with this reflexive question a lot in this project. Um, you know, I, you know, being so those who don't know, I'm a Korean American dude. My parents and grandparents immigrated from Seoul, South Korea, and I was born in California. So, you know, and I didn't grow up, I grew up sort of around like a Korean family, but I didn't have like a, an enclave where I was like hanging out with like other Koreans. Um, so, I think when I showed up in LA, South Central LA in particular, you know, people were wondering like, what's this dude all about? Like, why is he here? Um, but once they knew that I was like this hip hop head and that I had this background in hip hop culture and appreciation for hip hop culture, I think a lot of those kind of boundaries that I thought were going to be there kind of disappeared. And one thing that really helped me, and I guess I should have mentioned this earlier, was that I was actually at the time carrying a video camera with me in a backpack. So in the underground, it's not uncommon to kind of go to a hip hop event with a backpack. There's an actual saying for type of rapper who's a backpacker or backpack rapper. Um, just if listeners are like, yo, he's wearing a backpack and going to like a hip hop show, like what's wrong? <laughs> but so I had this little camera and it was um, because I wanted to record these performances, these ciphers, these battles, um, the inside the open mic itself. And people saw that I had this camera and they asked me if I could record them. Um, and a, lo a lot of them wanted to get their videos out on YouTube mm -hmm. or they just wanted it to have for their own um, uses. So I think that was also another kind of way into this project. People saw me as a collaborator in some sense they 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 would call me up and invite me to a show and say hey i'll get you uh, on stage um, and can you stand next to the dj and record me or they'll say get this stuff behind the scenes like be, you know they would sometimes like tell me like this is how i want the video to be can you come up and you, you can interview me when i'm hanging around with like my boys backstage so there was a lot of that i think that kind of like helped me get in so to speak but my my other kind of entree is also as a dancer. So when I was an undergrad, I got into pop locking, or in the Bay Area, they call it popping, but in LA and Compton, they call it pop locking, which is a, a style of funk dancing that people do to like um, Zap and Roger, Parliament, Funkadelic, like that kind of stuff. And there was a dancer in the scene named Tickalot, who is an old, old school street performer in Hollywood. He's from Compton. And he saw that I was a dancer and like I had this style that he thought was really corny. <laughs> like I started dancing at inside the open mic and he came in and just like served me. He just like, uh, you know, danced right after me and, and he was like a lot better. <laughs> so people were like, wow, that guy's whack. <laughs> <laughs> but he kind of took me under his wing. And I think when people saw that I was also hanging out with Tickalot, this guy that they respected, who was a performer in this space. Um, I think that also kind of helped facilitate these relationships. But 
the one thing that I do talk about in the book, and it's interesting because I just thought about it. So I made a, an announcement on my Facebook feed about um, blowing up, winning an award, and one Congrats of the on that, oh, by thank the you, way. man, thank you. I'm 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 humbled, but one of the one of the guys for, um, who's not in the book, but is a guy from Project Blowed, wrote in my comments um, something to the effect of like, "We're proud of you, fam," you, and they put Blodian. Mm. You know, Project Blodian is a term that people use to say like you're one of us, you're part of the scene. And, you know, I was always uncomfortable writing about myself as like an insider because again, I wasn't from the community. I was coming in from another world and I was also leaving the community afterwards and writing about it in a book or in articles, which is not what people are doing, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I kind of like push back on that insider-outsider language that sometimes is used in ethnography. And I thought that a better way to describe my relationship is that people saw me as somebody who was down. And I think in hip-hop culture, at least, and in maybe in everyday life, um, when you're down, it sort of signals uh, to people that you're trustworthy, that you're cool, that you kind of know what's up, that you sort of are politically or socially in tune with what's going on. Um, and so I think it's a, a term, it's a sort, of, sort of marks a person as an ally in a sense. So I think people saw me that way, even though they call me a Blodian and that kind of thing. But I, I really resisted that kind of like, you know, I got in, you know, like that, that whole like kind of way of describing things to me is so weird because it's sort of like saying like, Oh, okay. I, I passed this threshold where they could trust me, and then everything was cool from there. But yeah. if, you know, sociologists, we study relationships, and they change mm -hmm. over time. And sometimes you're trusted, and then you do something, and people are like, this guy's whack. Yeah. You know, so I, I try to talk about being down instead of being in. Uh, it moves away from this sort of false dichotomy that you can be an outsider or insider, or you can occupy both. Well, it depends on what time, what context, what place. And it shifts over time and, and in different spaces. Yeah. You might be part of a group online, but then in person, it's a completely <laughs> sort of different, right. uh, different thing. But I really appreciated that, that reflexive approach. It seemed that the entire book was grounded in a, like, I'm here uh, and I'm always constant of how my presence mm -hmm. is affecting everyone around me. And I think it's a lot of lessons to be learned oh, man. Um, uh, from that approach. Well, I, I appreciate that. I mean, that, that comes out of the, I think, the tradition at UCLA. Mm -hmm. um, just, you know, in, in some of our assignments, even in our fieldwork assignments, we were always encouraged to kind of reflect at the end of our field notes or even in the middle. Mm -hmm. um, just like, you know, you're not just kind of like recording this is what's happening, you know, like a robot, but you're also kind of in tune with how you are shaping what's going on, like what people, how people are acting around you, you know, like mm -hmm. there's like little things that I guess were sort of trained into us. Like we were drilled, like do this, like really keep a, keep an eye on what's going on and also like listen to yourself. Like how are you feeling in this moment? And yeah, I think. I think reflexivity is so important because, um, you know, in ethnography, you know, we have to, sometimes people talk about what they, what they write as, as if it's a, some kind of truth, like an mm. infallible truth. But I, I think what we're finding out, you know, is always conditioned by who we are. And so we have to like really put that out there. Like, you know, I was, I, and I, I'm very open with the idea that 
you know, being a Korean American dude in this black space, I was often sort of this oddball. Like people would like literally look at me when I'd go to like a new house party or like a, a show. Um, but that kind of disappeared after they, they talked to me, you know, and a lot of times it actually worked in my favor. Like people would come up to me right away and be like, yo, what are you doing here? You know? And like, so it would break the ice. I would yeah. say, oh, I'm a student. I'm writing about hip hop culture. And like, as soon as, as soon as they would hear that, they would be like, oh, I got to introduce you to my people. And like, it would go from there. So I, I tell that to my students a lot because a lot of times when they talk, when they get, you know, their foot out there into the real world and they want to study something ethnographically, some of them are sort of like, oh, what if I don't know people? Or I've, I've never been into the scene. Like, what's going to happen? And I go, you know, like being somebody who's like a little bit of an oddball is not the worst thing. So. Yeah, I, that's kind of where I was going uh, or I was going to go next with this chatting about your teaching um, mm. because it seems so important to you. Uh, so for the listener, uh, Ju Young has a great online presence uh, and uh, it's, it's good to see academics uh, taking that sort of uh, that public stance, not just in terms of research. There's been a lot of people who do that, um, but also in terms of teaching and in terms of pedagogy. So I'm really interested to get your take on, on how you approach teaching. What, what courses are you interested mm -hmm. in and um, what, what uh, teaching oriented questions are you sort of grappling with right now? Teaching to me is so important. You know, I feel like as educators, it's a humongous privilege and responsibility to be able to shape ideas in people's minds. And so, you know, I try to teach stuff that I, I love. That's kind of like my first thing. I always think, like, what do I love to talk about? What do I love to read? Mm. What do I want to, like, share with other people? And, like, once I find that, then I kind of figure I build a class around that and I'm super grateful because uh, my colleagues here have been really good about letting me create these quote-unquote special topics courses so these are courses that aren't officially on the books but I get this random idea you know on a Tuesday night and I'm like oh man it'd be cool to teach a class about hip-hop and I email my chair and and they're like okay so you know, I teach a course on hip hop, sociology of hip hop, which has been like four or five years running. Mm -hmm. That's a third year undergrad course. I teach a course on gun violence, which is also like a undergrad course at the third year. I teach a, I taught a course on serial homicide last um, fall, and that kind of is part of this new newer stuff that I'm moving into possibly like in true crime kind of investigations and, and stuff like that uh, I teach methods so I teach qualitative methods and ethnographic methods so the qualitative methods is more of like a a survey course both at the undergrad and graduate level but then the ethnography course is really just like I want you to go out write the field notes we're going to workshop talk about stuff that happens in the field and then I taught this summer actually so I teach a little bit in the Monk School through the Center for the Study of the U.S. And um, this summer I taught a course on mass shootings, which was a 20-person seminar where we just focused on mass shootings, the causes, the consequences. We read um, the manifesto of Elliot Rodger, the Santa Barbara shooter. Pedagogically, I would say I just try to find something that I'm really interested in and that I love thinking about and talking about. And then I try to really pick 
things I, I try to use a lot of multimedia that's yeah. like a big thing like i i think my style is really like you you're hanging out with a friend who's like a little eccentric and it's like 2 a.m and he's got all these like youtube videos that he wants to show you and then he's like so i toggle back and forth i show like multimedia sometimes it'll be like something random mm-hmm. um, sometimes it'll be something kind of more on the ball but I, I i try to throw a lot of that stuff in the mix and then narrate it um and i do a lot of discussion so mm-hmm. i try to like really like i try to treat it like a cipher like i tell students sometimes like when you're in my class think of it like a cipher and i play them videos of like freestyle ciphers mm-hmm. and I, I tell them that like really crazy things can happen if lots of people have a voice and we all kind of like take little bits from each other and build, right? That's something that you see in the cipher happening. A person will spit a hot 16 or a verse, and then somebody else will hear something in that verse that piques their kind of curiosity and gets them going. And so I, I really try to do that. And sometimes it's more successful than others. You know, sometimes in a lecture, I, I go like, so what do you think? And then it's just like crickets. Dead silence. <laughs> I think we've all been there at least once. Yeah, uh, if exactly. You've taught or uh, instructed really anything. There's yeah. always those moments <laughs> that where the discussion ends yeah. uh, or it really doesn't begin. Or you use a joke that worked on last year's class and then all of a sudden they're like, what is he doing right now? <laughs> uh, so I'm noticing, I'm noticing uh, that every year, uh, well, one, it's pretty obvious that the students are staying the exact same age. It's only me that's going, getting older. And because of that, a, a, a byproduct of that is that my references and my jokes are yeah. working. Are, they're less and less successful. Yeah. Every, I'm going to be that uh, 50-year-old, 60-year-old uh, <laughs> academic sitting there talking about MySpace in, in, in 2030 or something. Wow. Um, so yeah, I think that that's a challenge to sort of stay current is, is important, yeah. particularly when, um, we're in a time where information moves so quickly. Yeah. And it goes the other way too. So I'll tell a quick aside. So one of the, the first time I taught this hip hop course, I, I walked out and I was like, I think I was only, I had only been in Canada like a year and I was like, yeah, so just to get a kind of feel for where they were at, I was like, how many of you know who Tupac is? And like 120 students, I would say like 60 to 70 raise their hand. So I was like, okay, so like half, I thought there would be more. And I was like, how many of you know who Biggie Smalls is? Notorious B.I.G. And I, I'm not kidding. Like I looked out and there were like 20 hands. And so that's when I also realized I needed to stay current. I mean, I, I wanted to give them that history. I was like, wow, there's this real gap in like what they grew up with and what I grew up with. Um, but, you know, that's partially what inspired me to kind of like start listening to mumble rap and like, you know, Cardi B and like even Takashi 69 Like, you know, I was teaching this hip hop course this year and I was like, I can't just go in there with this. Like, you know, they're going to only listen to like the golden age, ni- early 90s, mid 90s hip hop. I'm going to show them the real hip hop. Um, I gave them the history. But, you know, as an educator, I was like, you know, I got to give this stuff a chance. I have to like know the stuff that they're listening to. Yeah. I just feel like, you know, if, with a class like hip hop, I have to like stay current and I, I had to ditch that, um, that kind of like hip hop elitism. Mm. So we see this a lot where people are like, oh, you know, this new stuff that the kids listen to is whack. The good old days. Yeah, exactly. The good old days. So it's cool though. It, it sort of keeps me on my toes. Um, 
So I try to do that. I try to stay current because I don't want to be like out of touch. I did make a mistake though, and this was super funny. Like I was lecturing about um, Danielle Brigoli, I think it's her real name. So she got famous or infamous uh, because she was on Dr. Phil disrespecting her mom. Mm. And she was the, she's the young girl from Florida, I believe, who started getting upset at audience members and she became known as the cash me outside girl, right? She became this meme. So she later went on to develop and she still has like a rap career. And I was lecturing about her and I didn't use her, her stage name correctly. I was, I was calling her Bad Bobby because I, I'd never heard anybody say it. I just looked at how it was written and it was, you know, it's not spelled like, you know, hip hop names are not, they don't spell them correctly, mm-hmm. right? And then somebody like tweeted at me, um, it's pronounced bad baby, <laughs> professor, by the way. <laughs> but yeah, I try to use, I try to use Twitter as well. Yeah. It's yeah. another way to kind of keep the conversation going. Yeah. And I, I think that that, that take on teaching seems to, to align itself well with what you're doing in the public sphere. Uh, and I, I think we can finish off with a discussion of this. We, uh, you'll hear last week's episode with, uh, with Netta. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked a lot about the role of public sociology and the role of Twitter and social networking mm-hmm. in, um, in your, your, not only your research dissemination, but also as an active part of your idea building. Yeah. And you seem to be really um, doing, a, or at least on the surface, from what I can tell, a great job of, uh, of bridging that gap between esoteric academic elitism and also Mm. uh, uh, sort of grounded, really in tune with what's going on in the social networking uh, game. So can you chat a little bit about your approach to social networking and where you see its value? So I do, I I try to tweet a lot and I try to, you know, offer like little hot takes on things here and there. Sometimes I just tweet stuff that's current and it's actually how I've met a lot of people in the media. Mm -hmm. So in Toronto, like for whatever reason, the media um, is really, you know, interested in talking to academics. Um, and, you know, I've, I've, I've put tweets out there before and then received calls later in the day from like a producer saying like, oh, I saw your tweet about this thing that's going on. Would you like to, would you be free to comment on it? Um, so I've used it that way just to have like a, a way to engage more broadly with like a public audience that might listen to the radio or might watch a TV show or like a news broadcast. And I've been doing these vlogs on Instagram. Uh, so I call it the rise and grind vlog. And it's not really necessarily sociological. Sometimes it is. Um, but the whole idea behind it is really just like um, about spreading positive vibes and you know, hustling every day and just sort of like treating every day as if it could be your last. And, you know, that, that was inspired in, in large part by my mother-in-law who passed away. Um, so her, you know, she, she had cancer for four years and she lived um, like every day just with so much like zest and passion. And, uh, you know, so the the idea behind it was like i want to like adopt some of that for myself and really you know go for it so this vlog is this kind of experiment um and yeah yeah i mean it's it's sometimes i'll comment on something that's just sort of in topical it's in the news other times it'll be more um 
about like, you know, things that I like to do, you know, like walk my dog or like jujitsu. Um, but yeah, it, it's just another way that I see myself getting out there and engaging with people. And, um, you know, one of the things that I like about vlogging as well is that I feel like it gives you a lot of practice at being concise. Like I think as academics, we're like generally pretty long winded and I feel like it, you know, if you have like a minute or even less on Instagram, sometimes like, what are you going to say? How are you going to package it? So I feel like it does help with like public speaking. It also helps you get over being camera shy, which I I've been for a long time. Like I'm super like introverted. So like doing like TV stuff is like nerve wracking to me. Like mm -hmm. I still kind of like have to like go through my little like internal ritual and be like, okay, it's going to be good. I'll you pump know? up. Yeah. Like, you know what you're talking about. Like, you're not an idiot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I think, and I, the whole thing about the elitism thing, like, that's, that's always been my gripe about academic work, um, is that there's so many great ideas in all of these fields of social science, and, and yet we're not really reaching, you know, people who could really benefit from knowing about this stuff. You know, even policymakers who you know, are typically part of a very educated part of the public are not picking up our journals, our books, and that kind of thing. You know, people don't have time to, like, sit down and really digest the stuff. So to me, I was always, I always thought that was weird. I was like, you know, like, policymakers and people who are out there doing programming for TV shows and other influencers or people in general, like they're not getting the message. So how can we bridge that? And I think, I think social media um, provides one way to do that. So that's kind of been my approach at least. I'm drawn to, to your presence on social media because it's such a positive force mm. because we're so, it's so easy to, to find negativity online yeah. um, and in this discipline and elsewhere um, and, and seeing um, someone who is, uh, able to, to sort of uh, garner connections with people in a positive way and, and have a positive message is really is, it's really interesting and, and uh, unnecessary I think uh, in the in the light of uh, current public debates about a whole bunch of uh, very man, important issues man I, I hear you you know and, and you're like one of the a few people have told me this recently and you know that that inspires me even more because I've always thought it was weird that you know, as sociologists and social scientists, I, actually, I shouldn't say social science. I don't know other fields as well as my own, but in sociology, we really, most of our work is focused on bad news. It's really like, you know, why is this awful stuff happening, you know, to these people? And we have explanations for that. Um, and I think that that work is super important. And I, I do that kind of work as well. But there's this whole kind of side of our human condition you know, the joy, the love, the laughter, you know, all of this side of stuff, like the support, the mm -hmm. friendship, all of this stuff is sort of like not getting the same kind of attention. And then if we look in the media, it's like 99% the terrible things. It's like the mass shooting, the scandal, the serial killer, you know, the police officer who does terrible things. Um, like, I feel like part of it was maybe even just like, or self-care. I was like, you know, like I need to do something for myself that's going to like remind me of like all the good stuff that's also out there. And 
Yeah, I just I just enjoy connecting to people through that avenue because I end up meeting people in just random fields. Like I meet people who are into like um, like fitness and nutrition. I meet people who are into martial arts. Um, people who are into other academic fields, journalists, you know, who are all kind of like positive and they want to build. So my hope is that it's sort of like maybe the the goal is to inspire more collaboration and building instead of just like fighting and tearing each other down because it feels like sometimes academia is like this um you know sort of blood sport where everyone's sort of like trying to like flex on each other mm-hmm. and i get it i get like i understand like that part of it and i think critique and critical thinking is integral but it just feels so heavily skewed towards that instead of like how can we build something cool together yeah yeah and what gets lost when when it's all about competition it's all about uh, uh basically taking peer review and putting it on steroids <laughs> 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 having peer review in every aspect at conferences at uh, face-to-face interactions it, it's it's definitely tough and it's good to have people who in this discipline from within who are um, willing to to move beyond that and uh, present a positive uh, approach so um, we've spoken about your, your social networking, but you haven't given the shout outs. So where can we find you if we're oh. interested in uh, hearing <laughs> more from you? Sure. So I guess the easiest way would be on Twitter. I'm at the young Jew, young, just like you're a young person. So at the young Jew. And I have an Instagram account. Um, it's at Jitsu Lee, but Jitsu is not spelled like the actual word jujitsu, it's J O O J I T S U L E E. So, nice. a little, I don't know, another little lame joke. A little, <laughs> little play on the word jujitsu for my name. But so, those are two places where I'm on social media. And sometimes I share and cross, and sometimes they're kind of separate. But yeah, if you, if you want to, you know, interact or chat just send me a shout out like i uh i talk to all kinds of people all the time yeah yeah i met ju young on uh on twitter just like ned i sort of <laughs> slid into the dms uh, and just started nice. chatting with him and he was very accessible and very open to my questions even while i was reading blowing up yeah. i had a question mid book yeah um and and ju young was was um there to answer uh so uh, it's been great to chat with you. I know that you have to run. You're a very important and, and busy uh, professor. You've got another media uh, thing to do after. So thank you so much um, for coming on What's That Noise. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm very humbled and honored. So yeah, keep it keep it going, though. This is great, man. Yeah, it's been it's been a blast. We will try to keep it going. And you can find all the contact information uh, for Ju Young. Uh, it'll be in the description, uh, and we'll share it widely on our Twitter. So follow not only Ju Young, but also so myself, Derek Krim, uh, and the, the, the podcast at WTNCast. And until next time, uh, keep listening for the noise.